Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm terribly excited because we get to continue talking about the executive office of the president. Yes, and a billion points of offices. <laughs> I like, I'm wondering, I, just as a curiosity, and I know we, you don't know the answer to this, but I have to wonder how many post-it notes this many offices would go through. Oh, wow. I mean, well, I mean wouldn't that be a great study if we could figure that out? Well, I mean, but the study would have to be electronic because of the uh, uh, Government Paper Reduction Act. Oh, that's uh, that right. That we previously discussed, right? That's right. They're not doing post-its now. But I mean, <gasps> they're saving trees. Yeah. They're saving trees. But again, if the executive office of the president is populated by staffers like you, okay, there's post-it notes everywhere. Down. Oh, yeah. There's index cards all over the place, post-it notes. Their entire offices are covered in it. I'm well, sorry. It, I'm a tree killer, I have to say. But, but, but it's kind of sort of fascinating because students have asked me this question um, because, you know, my colleague, Bill Newman, uh, uh, he uses index cards for his lectures. You use post-it notes as reminders. Me, I like to get those short memo, uh, small memo books, okay? And I write down my to-do list. Right. So I go through like four or five of those a year. You know what the common theme between those three people is? We're ancient. <laughs> I, yeah. I love Bill Newman, but he's part of the ancient crowd. Uh, we're all over. Let's be gentle and say we're all over 40. Yes. Right. And I so mean, none of us think to use the notes field on our phones. That's right. Yes. Yes. The yes, way yes, people yes. are like, wait, 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 let me get in the notes field. Okay, go ahead. I'll take a note now. And, and I'm like, oh, right. I could do that. But I don't because there's something comforting to me about pen and paper. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I right? don't know what that I'm sure that that's just because the way I was raised. If I had been raised as a digital native, I would I would reach for my phone or some other device like that that would help me with an electronic memory. Oh, sure. I mean, and, and I know the origin of me writing extensive to-do lists every day. It, it, it came from my education with Catholic school nuns, ah. okay? They were like, you know, if you want an organized mind, write down what you have to do the following day. Exactly. And cross it off as you go through it. And there's a certain pleasure in crossing things off. Oh, oh there's the yes. you know the pleasure of completion that you're yes. like, I have done this thing. I have done the laundry. I have chopped all the vegetables. I have whatever it is that you're doing, and you can make a list. Um, and I shouldn't say that it's all people over forty because my bestie is a person over forty who reaches for his phone for everything. But he's like a a tech guy. Yeah, that yeah, may yeah. also be the difference is techie versus non-techie people. Yeah. Um, I still prefer to read books in paper. I know that there are yeah, Kindles. Yes. I know that there's an electronic book and I know you can read it electronically. And I always find myself thinking, yes, but can't I just get that in paper? I like the feel of a hardback book. Yep. Okay. Um, I like uh, uh, the, the weight, the texture of the paper. Um, and because... I spend so much time looking at a computer screen during the day um, that I actually enjoyed the break of being able to read a hardback book. I even like the sound of the glue of the spine cracking as I get to like page 80 or page 150, <laughs> right? That's so comforting to me to hear that, right? Yeah, and there are um, a bunch of people who've never read a book in paper. Yeah, yeah, they're just and like... That's just phenomenal to me that that even exists in the world. Yeah, I can read that on my tablet. Good for you. <laughs> uh, but anyways, let's get back to the executive office of the president. Yeah. We have the office of the chief of staff. Okay. Now, for any of you who ever watched the old TV show, The West Wing, 
That's what the West Wing was about, the office of the chief of staff, okay? Because you have a bunch of deputy chief, chiefs of staff, okay? You have the communications office, including the press secretary, right? So all of those staffers comprise the office of the chief of staff. I guess I didn't even think about that. Okay, so yes. in that particular instance, CJ worked for Leo. Yes. Oh, I thought the communications was separate. Okay, so no. communications is under the chief of staff. That's right. Yes. Okay. Wow. I I feel kind of dumb. I watched that show and didn't realize that the entire thing was about one section of the executive <laughs> office of president. <laughs> and there were a whole bunch of junior staffers and all kinds of people running. I mean, hey, some of, some of the some of the episodes of that TV show were hard to follow because there were so many characters. And that was just one part of the executive office of the president, right? right. Okay, so the office of the chief of staff, is is it the biggest office? In terms of the number of personnel, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, not reach. I assume that some of the others have more reach. Yeah, if you wanna talk about reach, the next one has a lot of reach, the office of management and budget. Okay, uh, this was previously known as the Bureau of the Budget until the Nixon administration. The Office of Management and Budget, okay, not only, if you will, crafts the president's budget that gets submitted to Congress, but they're also in charge of how the money gets spent once it's been appropriated by Congress. And they also do cost benefit analysis of all major regulations being contemplated by any agency in the executive branch. Did they always do that? No, that is a, a, a phenomenon that began, began with the Nixon administration. Okay. Okay, and so now- the, hence the name of the name changes. Yes. Because they're managing the all of the- management, that's right. Okay. 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 And now, Congress goes ahead and puts that requirement in most laws. <laughs> oh, this has to be this has to be vetted by the OMB. Yes, yes, yep. Okay. Then we have the Office Does of the it, National. Yeah, go wait, ahead. Do they get to veto things? I mean, do they get to say, no, 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 no? That's going to cost yes. way more than you think it's going to yes. cost. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. And that's why, for instance, it's one of the very few positions in the EOP that has to be confirmed by the United States Senate. Oh, the, the chief of the OMB has to be The director confirmed. of the Office of Management and Budget has to be approved by the United States Senate. That has to be somebody they think they can work with. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yep. So let me pause here for a second because I have a question about this. Okay, so law gets passed. Augie's law of lawness gets passed and it's going to cost $2 million, they think. But <clears throat> they put in there, but the OMB has to check our numbers, right? And then the o then it goes to the OMB, it gets passed and it goes to the OMB or it goes to the president and it gets signed and it goes to the OMB and they say, no, no, it's gonna cost 4 million. No, 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 no. The, the, the process is slightly different than you. Okay. Okay. So let's just say, for instance, uh, Congress passes a bill uh, that says the Department of Agriculture uh, should create a program that uh, encourages um, uh, 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 American farmers uh, to uh, have um, llamas. <laughs> I don't know why llamas, right? I like it. It's okay. the llama law. It's the llama law, right? Okay. <laughs> so the I, department, Department of Agriculture. I can already yes. see the thing on CNN going across the bottom of the screen. Yeah, llama the, law, the, llama law passes Congress. Yes, right. Um, after an extensive filibuster in the United States Senate, the llama <laughs> right. law, okay, has been passed, and President Biden 
um, has indicated he will sign it. And it's done all the things, right? It's gone through both committees. I mean, both the House and the Senate. It's gone Senate. back to the Joint Committee and been and yes. been lovingly crafted. And so, yeah, because you know the House probably wanted five million uh, uh, llamas to uh, uh, be born and raised, but the Senate's like, you know, that's a little much. Let's go with two, and then they settle on three point five million, right? right? So, it gets signed by Biden. The Department of Agriculture then is like, oh, hey, we got to come up with a program, okay, to incentivize American farmers to, you know, breed and raise llamas. So, as we've discussed in a previous episode, okay, they came up, they come up with a proposed rule. Before it gets published in the Federal Register, since it's going to cost a whole bunch of money. OMB does a cost-benefit analysis. And the OMB might say to the Department of Agriculture, yeah, how you guys want to do this is going to cost too much, okay? So you're going to have to come up with a different, if you will, program. So Congress has earmarked $5 trillion for the Llama Love yes. bill. Yes. Uh, $5 trillion is too much. $5 million for the Llama Love bill. Yes. And then then the Department of Agriculture says, here's how we want to spend our five million dollars on encouraging llama love. And, 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 the, o and the OMB says, one, that's not cost effective. Right. Your five million dollars is wasted in these ways. Or, yeah, we worked out the math and it's actually going to cost you seven million to do it the way you're talking about doing it. You have to go back and rethink because yes. it has to stay within budget. OK. Yep. All right. So there's our process. Yes. In a nutshell for Lama Love. Other uh, offices within the executive office of the president, the National Security Advisor, the Domestic Policy Council, the National Economic Council, the Office of American Innovation. Wait, the Office of American Innovation. Yes. <laughs> there's there's an office that encourages Americans to be innovators? Yes. Because we don't think that capitalism will do it on its own? Um, or is that technically the office of capitalism? <laughs> now, Mia's channeling her inner progressive. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just saying. Okay. All right. This, uh, the Office of American Innovation um, arose in part during the Reagan administration, which argued the federal government had become so big and ubiquitous that it was squelching the innovative spirit of the private sector. Okay, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Did you just say to me the, the government is so big, it's crushing innovation, so we should hire more people to <laughs> fix crushing innovation yes hmm. Hmm, I, I say i kid you not on the on yes. the well government's really too big you know what we should do we should hire more people to fix that okay all right i i'm side-eyeing the american innovation office i'm sure they're nice people i'm okay. sure they're very nice people i'm just saying then we have the office of cabinet affairs now mind you before the executive <laughs> Please office tell of, me that that's getting people to engage in affairs, getting secretaries to engage in affairs. That would be so awesome. It's like the, <laughs> the hallmark, but anti-hallmark since, you know, the hallmark. No, 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 no. This has, this has nothing to do with sex or uh, extramarital affairs. This has everything to do with the fact that uh, because we now have 15 15 cabinet departments, okay? Um, and, um, uh, and of course, those departments are so large, we need to have an office within the executive office of the president to coordinate how the office of president will interact with the cabinet. So, let me make sure I understand. This is the office of the Google Calendar. 
<laughs> they're keeping up with everybody's calendar entries so that they can know when a president can see a certain person and when that person more importantly when that person can see the president because really pretty much when the president calls you as the as the secretary of state and says i want you to come over to the white house you drop whatever it is that you were doing and you go over to the white house because the president you serve at the pleasure of the president, but well, it's so more that, than just the, the, so the Google calendar. They're, they're coordinating the Google calendar. They're coordinating no, no, breakfast it, and tea for no, the it, meetings. It goes beyond that. It makes sure that the cabinet departments, okay, um, uh, get vetted with the EOP, any new policy initiatives that they may want to undertake. Oh, okay. So the Department of State calls the calls the Office of of Cabinet Affairs and says, "Hey, we were thinking about bombing North Korea. We're talking to defense and we think it's a good idea, but we'd like to run it by y'all." And then, and then they go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what? You want to do what?" Yeah. <laughs> and at that point, the Office of Cabinet Affairs then brings in the National Security Advisor and says, <laughs> Why did you not know that state was talking to defense about bombing North Korea, right? <laughs> so basically the other thing that the Office of Cabinet Affairs do, does is prevents a coup. Yes. Okay. 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 <laughs> okay. Then we have the aforementioned communications office, okay, including the press secretary. Which is under the chief of staff? Yes. But yep. it has its own separate office as well? Sure it does, okay? Because, I mean, you know, we're talking about 21st century communication, right? Okay, so, you know, we have the press secretary. We have the person who's in charge of the president's message of the day, right? We have social media now. We still have print media, right? Um, we also have uh, TV and radio. Okay. So are there two offices of communications? No. Okay. There's no. just the one. It's just the one. But in this right? particular instance, it reports up through the chief of staff, or do they all report up through the chief of staff? No, no. Okay. That one no. just happens to. Okay. Yes. Okay. Then you have the IT office. <laughs> right. You know, mean, the guys who this, come around and fix your computers. I mean, this is phones. 21st century. Right. You know, the, 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 this is the 21st century. You need an IT uh, office. That then makes you sense. Have the, then you have the office of the first lady. Okay. Okay. Uh, then you have the office of intergovernmental affairs. Okay. So wait, wait, wait. I have a question about the first lady's office. So the first lady is not a position in government. That is correct. But she is given a small staff, right, in order to manage her time yes. and to manage her, right, like all the affairs and things. I mean, not affairs, affairs, but the other kinds of affairs. Public uh, events. Um, the, uh, right, yes. All of that stuff. So when, so when Dr. Biden came to Richmond not too long ago. First that was all, coordinated through the office of the first lady, right? Like they, yes. they vetted after, where she was going and what she was going to do. And after the chief of staff's office signed off on it. Oh, okay. So her staff can't just go rogue and say, oh, you know who I bet, I bet really didn't enjoy that was Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, <laughs> Well, I can't imagine that in her office of the first lady. Okay, but remember, okay, the executive office of the president was not created until 1939. Okay, and what we are seeing today is the modern, shall we say, Evolution. fully developed executive office of the president. Yeah, because right? I'm telling you, she did not run her schedule by anybody. Yeah, from what I've read about in the various biographies I've read about the Roosevelt administration, there was, shall we say, very little coordination between FDR's West Wing and Eleanor Roosevelt's, shall we say, public schedule. Yes, because on a regular basis, she went and spoke against things that he had been yes. talking for, which I just find hilarious for them as a, uh, uh, well, it says a lot about the, their marriage. Um, but anyway, so the modern office of the First Lady coordinates 
Yes. With the chief of staff so that they're on the same message. So they're, they're doing the yes. same kinds of things. Yes. Yep. Okay. What is the office of digital strategy? Ah, okay. Uh, me is kind of sort of jumping ahead here. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, no, never mind. Go ahead. You do yours. No, 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 no. <laughs> digital strategy is social media. That's it. Okay. Yep. I'm not surprised by that, that that would be a very modern thing you would need to have. Like, that actually whatever arose in else one might argue about um, President Trump, he definitely popularized. Oh, hey, this arose during the Obama administration. Right. But the yeah, use of yeah, the use yeah. of the White House by uh, on especially on Twitter um, became much more common in the Trump presidency. Uh, because that's the way people communicate now. It, some people communicate now. Okay, yes. so what else? Um, We're only we, up to about a thousand employees. We've got. Oh, we we got we got a whole we got a bunch more. Uh, for those of you who are um, uh, bureaucracy uh, geeks, uh, the next two are right up your alleys. Um, uh, the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs, uh, which is. Uh, uh, coordinating with state and local governments. Um, so for instance, uh, President Biden um, uh, will be uh, making a couple visits uh, to uh, tout his COVID-19 stimulus package, one to Pennsylvania and one to Georgia. So of course, that, <laughs> okay, that office- Those two states, well done yes, him. Yes, right. <laughs> um, then you have the Office of Legislative Affairs which basically uh, coordinates with Congress. So, so wait, so intergovernmental affairs, what they'll do is that will be the office that coordinates with the local state officials so that somebody's at the airport to greet the president so that they actually know the venues and they understand where they're going and they can tailor the speech to the, to the crowd that they'll be talking to, right? You don't, yes. you, you don't uh, wanna be tonally well, insensitive. Well, that's also part of the office of public offices of public engagement and the offices of scheduling in advance. Intergovernmental affairs deals with, let's say you are the Democratic governor of Virginia, okay, and you find out that surrounding states are getting more vac uh, 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 doses of vaccines than your state. As the governor of a state, you don't get to call up the president and say, <laughs> hey, Joe, buddy, what's the deal, right? No, instead, you would call up the executive office of the president, and they will go ahead and direct you to the office of intergovernmental affairs, okay? And then they will say, well, we'll look into this for you, okay, and get back to you. Okay, so they're essentially constituent services for government leaders in the states. Sure. Okay. Yes. Right. Okay. You know, you get, you know, if if you're the governor, you know, if you're the uh, the the mayor of Los Angeles, okay, and you're supposed to get, you know, millions of dollars from the Department of Education, and for some reason you're not getting it, and you've called up the Department of Education and you're getting the runaround, well. Who do you call up? Well, you call up the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and say, hey, you need you guys need to go ahead and you know bring the hammer down on the Department of Education because we got a whole bunch of school kids, okay, that aren't getting their lunches. And my next stop is CNN. Yes. Right. Like this yes. needs to get fixed. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um and then you said legislative affairs, which I assume is Congress. The people who talk to Congress. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So is that are they the ones that arrange the meetings between the president and and various senators and House members when they come over to talk about like whatever thing, or are they going to the to the Hill and trying to both? Okay. Both. Okay. Then you have others. I mean, some of my favorites, um, the Oval Office Operations, okay? Yeah, You're they should have told President Bush how to find the door. 
because he didn't look good that first time. That was not very nice of them. Okay. Um, you know, these are the folks who go ahead and decorate the White House, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. These are the ones who actually go to the National Gallery of Art and pick out the art that the first family wants to stare at for the next four to eight years, right? Okay. Oh, I see. I'd be changing that out every six months. <laughs> okay. Like, y'all need to go get me some new paintings. I'm assuming it also is things like the upkeep of that, of a historical residence, right? That's a. Yes. I mean, there's just a lot of things that you have to do restoration wise that you have to do very specifically in order to keep the. Yes. the value of the place and all those other kinds of things like your average construction worker no offense intended intended to average construction workers because i love them um doesn't work in restoration because it's a certain kind of work so i'm assuming that they do things like they guarantee things like that what is the office of the staff secretary uh basically uh that's the office that goes ahead and manages all the administrative assistants who work for individuals in the executive office of the president. Oh, okay. So, which is separate from the personnel office, which manages, okay, um, all of the people who work for or work in the executive office of the president. So that's okay. their HR department. That's their HR department. And then you have the White House military office, okay, which provides security for the White House. Okay. Okay. So, you know, the Marines. I was going to say that are always by the door standing. Yes, or at the gate, you know, okay, et cetera. Uh, and the sharpshooters on the top of the roof. and. That's right. And okay. then you have the White House Counsel's Office, which you and I discussed in a previous podcast episode. It was uh, in the Trump administration. It was occupied by Don McGrath. Okay. And basically, they are the Office of President's Lawyers, which is not to be confused with the Justice Department. Okay. The Justice Department is the main law enforcement department of the US federal government. The Office of President has their own lawyers. However, the White House counsel is the president is the office's lawyers. Lawyer, right, not the individual's Visuals. lawyer. That's right. President Trump had his own set of lawyers that were separate from and so does president biden i assume have yes. his own set of lawyers that are separate from the white house white house counsel because the white house counsel's job is to protect the office of the presidency not the president that's right right so it's it's his yes. job his or her job to say that is going to harm the presidency in this way you should not do it sir or ma'am right as opposed to that's your own problem and I'm not dealing with that. You need to hire a lawyer for that. Okay. So there, the office of the White House counsel, if you are impeached, does not defend you. Yes. Right, your, your own personal no. lawyers. No. Okay. Because again, who's being impeached? The, the current office. occupant of the office of president. Okay. okay? Now, if you're president and you're not necessarily happy or satisfied with the lawyers in the White House counsel's office, can you individually hire your own attorney? Sure, that's what Trump did, okay? But, okay. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton relied upon, okay, a combination of White House counsel and private attorneys. Ah, okay. Okay, because again, who is being impeached, the current occupant? Could that potentially affect future occupants of the office of president? Yes. But all, loss, all other lawsuits, all other types of lawsuits are held until the president is no longer 
president. Isn't that correct? No. Can, I cannot sue. Can I just sue Joe Biden tomorrow for something? Because of the Supreme Court ruling of, uh, 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 and I'm going to get, I can probably look this up, Clinton versus Jones. Okay. Or is it Jones versus Clinton? Hold on just a second. Yeah, it's Clinton versus Jones, 1997. The Supreme Court held, okay, that a sitting president has no immunity from civil law litigation. Okay, so you can sue the president. Yeah, you can sue the president. Now, many presidents will argue, like Bill Clinton did, okay, that the lawsuit can wait until they're out of office, okay? Um, and that's effectively what happened in regards to the state of New York um, suing Donald Trump for his tax records to see if he engaged in fraudulent business practices before he ran for president. And okay. the argument is, is, goes along the lines of distraction, right? This is a distraction for the person who is yes. running the basically the largest country in the free world. Like, yes. Yes. This can wait. Yes. Okay. Okay. Now, if you know, if you were Paula Jones and you believed that Bill Clinton, when he was governor of Arkansas, sexually harassed you, you might not think that the lawsuit can wait. Um, and the Supreme Court said, well, you know, hey, uh, what's being asked is that you provide a deposition. And Mr. President, you can probably find two hours of time okay, to give a deposition. Right. And for those of, uh, for listeners, if you wonder in part why Bill Clinton got impeached, it was that deposition, okay, that led to uh, the House of Representatives to bring charges of impeachment. Right. Okay, that he lied during the deposition. I was gonna say, it's, it's never the thing, it's the cover up, it's the lie. Right. Oh, sure. If President right? Nixon had just said, wow, boy, did we screw that up. He well, might I mean, have survived it, but well, instead I mean, in he Nixon, tried to. I mean, in one of the facts of the Watergate, if you will, fiasco was that Richard Nixon did not order the break-in of the Democratic National Committee, right? right. It was his re-election committee, okay, who went ahead and hired third-rate burglars, okay, to do the break-in, okay? He could have quite easily said, particularly after he won by a landslide in 1972, hey, my re-election committee broke the law, okay? And I have fired all of those people, and... I fired them all, right? I right. fired them all. No, instead, <laughs> he was just like, my enemies are out to get me, and we need to go ahead and, and cover this up. Right. Well, I mean, at that point, you know, as you just pointed out, it's the cover up, right? You know, many politicians, okay, believe that, you know, if I can, you know, cover this up, if I can create distance, okay, this won't touch me. If history has proven anything, okay, the more you try to get distance, the closer you're going to be, at least in the public's eyes to the wrongdoing. Right. Okay. Right. You got a friend who's a screw up. Go ahead and say, yes, they're a good friend. And they made a mistake, like all humans. Right? Right. But if you try to go ahead and say, well, we really haven't been friends in the last 20 years. <laughs> well, you know what the press is going to try to do? They're going to try to go ahead and find out how often you've spoken to that friend. Exactly. Right? They're going to look at pictures from weddings. They're going to look at all kinds of stuff to try to, oh, really? Because we we found records that you were with them at least 31 times in the last year. And you're like, ah, crap. Yeah. Crap. Okay. You yeah. know, just, it's, it's, yeah, just it's the tell camera. the truth. It's just easier. Okay. So now we have 2,000 people <laughs> working in the executive branch. Um, and... And that what, what, makes, what, okay, so that makes the opening scene, and I know we talk about the West Wing a lot, but it makes the opening scene where Leo gets a bunch of people's names wrong make more sense. Because if you're talking about 2,000 people, that's hard to get 
Yeah. That's hard to manage. So I'm assuming. Yeah, listeners, what Neo's referencing is the very first episode of the (laughs) West Wing. Okay. Um, You basically have the camera following the (laughs) chief of staff of the Bartlett administration, Leo McGarry. And I shouldn't okay. say a bunch of names. He only gets one guy's name wrong, but he but he says, good morning, so-and-so, good morning, so-and-so. And then he says something like, good morning, Dan. And the guy says, Don. And he says, whatever. Because it's... <laughs> yeah, right? Okay. I mean, <laughs> my favorite description of the executive office of the president is, and it's sarcastic, the EOP is coordinating the coordinators. <laughs> right? I mean, we are now at a point, okay, where, honest to goodness, you need a two-page flow chart just to understand the executive office of the president. Yeah, that's that's perhaps a little big. Yes. I'm just going to say that might be when people talk about, quote, bloated government, that might be in part what they're talking about, is this tendency to oh, well, we'll just hire a person who can handle that part and uh, we'll make them report to uh, the office of scheduling in advance, right? Like, it, it, Yeah, I mean, we create agencies to coordinate, provide oversight instead of just saying, do we need all of these agencies? Do right. we need all of these people, right? Okay. Well, and the other thing is... Um, one of the things that happens, at least one of my criticism of, criticisms of this would be that often what happens in government is um, the more mass you occupy, the, the more seeming power or control you have. So like one of the things that you'll notice with certain people in Congress is they have like one or two clerks and then certain people in Congress have like 30 clerks. Like it's a, and part of that is a power play. It's this sort of look how important I am. I have so many assignments. I need so many clerks. I need so much. So if an office within the office of the president or in the executive office of the president is trying to occupy more space and more people because it will change the power dynamic yes and so you find people adding it it happens forgive me vcu we love you but it happens at all higher ed institutions eventually they hire a vice provost for llamas and you're like wait do we even have llamas on campus and they're like but we might in the future and we should consider that we need a vice provost for llamas. So so you get this sort of bloat in the bureaucracy that happens in part because it adds weight, literal weight to the institution. It adds adds extra, which makes you think that the institution is more powerful or stronger than it may or may not be. And then once you go ahead and create those offices and hire people to fill positions, then you got to give them something to do. Right. Right. Um, And at that point, okay, then that's where you get, you know, people in staff positions who are like, this is busy work. Okay. You know, uh, you know, they're forcing us to do stuff because somebody went ahead and gave them, you know, power and responsibility. Right. Right. And a budget. Somebody gave them a budget and they're like, oh, well, I'm going to spend it. That's the other thing that happens in government for people who don't work in government. A lot of times, if you don't spend the money, then you don't get it the next year. So you will find ways to spend the money, even if you don't need to, um, because they, a lot of times they call that year-end money. It masks masquerades as, as this sort of whatever budget but what it really is is oh well but if we don't ask for it this year then i mean if we don't use it this year when we ask for it next year and we need it we won't get it get it that's right so you have to be super careful about that uh because that tends to grow these kinds of things yeah use it or lose it right 
Yeah. Uh, so that's another part of, and the other thing too is, um, and I hate to say this, but this is the cynical part of me saying, and the more Byzantine you make it, the harder it is for people to fight whatever it is you're doing. Right. Like if you say yeah. to me, if the reason that I don't get Jeff Bezos on the phone when I call Amazon is because he's hoping that at some level my thing can be dealt with without him ever having to deal with it himself. But also, if it can't be dealt with, I will get I will get the runaround. I will get three or four or five people until I give up. And that's another thing that happens with bureaucracy. And it, it's in part because having to having to answer the hard questions is, oh, I don't know, hard. So I don't know if that's what's going on in the office no, of the well, president. But, 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 that's one criticism. Uh, there's three other ones that I want to mention before we conclude. Okay. Uh, one, uh, it's presidential-centric democracy. Um, and, you know, as I discussed uh, early in this podcast episode, um, this is definitely different than the conception the framers had when they wrote the U.S. Constitution, right? Uh, in the U.S. Constitution, and we've discussed this at length, the bulk of the federal government's power rests with the Congress. Okay, so, you know, everything is focused on the president. Okay, and we've had a huge paradigm shift, um, a huge paradigm shift. Um, another criticism, um, the business model that was the foundation of the Brownlow Commission doesn't always work in the government. Okay. It doesn't always work in the government, right? Right. Um, and some of what business does, we don't want the government to do. No. I mean, you know. Because sometimes remind, business has to be heartless in order to make. Yeah. And, and, and I also remind students, you know, in business, okay, there's basically one accountability check. Okay. And it's the shareholders. Right. You could possibly argue consumers. Okay. But, you know, shareholders. But in a democracy, you know, we have checks and balances. We have, you know, federalism, okay? Um, we so have far. elections. <laughs> yeah, right? We have elections, right? And the other criticism, um, and presidential scholars have made this uh, a particular point, uh, the cabinet has been replaced by the executive office of the president as uh, the president's main advisors, right? I mean, it is not unusual today for presidents to not meet with the cabinet every year. I kid you not. Which seems like a terrible idea. Seems like a terrible idea, right? I mean, if you're the president and you want to know the scope of what the executive branch is doing, okay, being forced to sit around a table with 15 department secretaries, okay, and hear what's going on within their departments, I think would be extremely beneficial to a president. But that hardly ever happens now. Yeah, and if you're worried about the length of those meetings, you could do them standing up. Yeah. <laughs> Which would make everybody talk faster. But, um, but no, yeah, that seems like, I mean, I would want to meet with those people because I would want to make sure that we were all still on the same page and we were all still working towards the same thing. But if I have replaced them with people that are right down the hall that and I can remember, just, that I can just it, run back and forth with. And remember, those in the executive office of the president, with the exception of the director of the OMB, serve at the pleasure of the president. So the advice you're getting as president from the executive office of the president is terrible because it's people who want to keep their jobs. Jobs, whereas cabinet secretaries, they've been approved by the Senate. Okay, there is buy-in from the Senate. Okay, right. Think and about, firing them is very public. Yeah, it's very public, right? I mean, let's face it. Okay, when Trump was going through, you know, multiple, you know, secretaries of defense. 
Okay. He even started getting blowback from Republican members of Congress. Right. You know, hey, what the heck's going on here? Right. Right. Okay. So, you know, that is somewhat problematic when you think about, for instance, I mean, hey, and let's face it. Okay. If you're having regular cabinet meetings, okay, you're forcing the rest of the executive branch leadership to know what's going on in the rest of the government. Exactly. Okay. And, and you're and forcing that group of 15, as we've discussed, unicorns into the same room to work together, which means that they have to, they're going to have to compromise. They're going to have to say, okay, well, if you guys need to do that, we can slack off on this. If you can give us this, it, 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 it builds a negotiation that's different. Yeah, it, it's more, it is more difficult to go ahead and engage in uh, bureaucratic turf fighting if you got to stare across the table at the department head who you want to go ahead and, you know, steal some of their, you know, budget or, you know, uh, authority to do X, right. okay? You know, good luck going ahead and saying to um, uh, the, the head of the Justice Department, yeah, I really don't think the FBI should in investigate domestic terrorism. Really? Really? Okay. <laughs> You're going to say that to Merrick Garland, okay, who prosecute, prosecuted the Oklahoma City bomber, okay? You're right. going to say that to him. And, and he's going to get to say to you, tell me why. Yes. And if you make a legitimate claim, then he has to think about that. Yeah. But if you don't make a legitimate claim, you've made a legitimate claim out of in front of 15 other people, you look like a chucklehead. You can't yes. just say, because I want it or because I think <laughs> yeah. so. Yeah, right? Right. Like you have to have some reasoned argument. You have to bring more chops if you're meeting with other people like that and, and you're meeting and you're doing it in front of the president because nobody wants to look like an idiot in front of the president if they can help it. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the other yeah. thing, too, is that there is a head staffer from each of those departments in the room make, taking notes. That's the other thing is that that I'm sure that what really good thing comes out of of a cabinet meeting is, hey, I'm going to call so and so over at such and such, see if we can get together for lunch and talk about this thing that we have in common and see how we can coordinate the money and the people and the effort in order to make that happen. Yeah, you know, hey, uh, you know, uh, hey, we've dealt with that committee of Congress before, um, and this is what's worked. Hey, why don't we get together and go ahead and chat about, you know, how you guys can best, you know, write that up so the committee chair actually gives it a listen instead of just unilaterally saying, yeah, I don't want to do that. Right. right? <laughs> okay. Right. So, uh, it is had a, a, oh, sorry, go ahead. It had a, so the, the, the Brownlow, the Brownlow Commission, okay, um, I know many listeners probably never heard of it before, but it had a significant impact, okay, on how the federal government changed um, uh, uh, starting in the late 1930s, and, and you see it manifest today, right, uh, um, you know, uh, and um, we will post on the research guide, uh, listeners, um, uh, the, the, the Brownlow Commission report. Um, and we'll also give you a book title um, for those of you who are interested um, in the evolution of the Executive Office of the President, a book by two of my mentors from Virginia Tech, Karen Halt and Chuck Walcott, and the name of the book is Governing the White House uh, from Hoover, Hoover through LBJ. Um, and it's not, a, it's not a long book, um, and they do a really good job explaining the evolution uh, of the executive office of the president. So. Um, and I know we have no current plans to visit the other commission reports on this. Uh, but if, um, but I'm going to put those on the research guide as well, so that people can follow along where the commissions are basically continually saying, we got to fix this, we got to fix this, we got to fix this. Hey, did we mention 
we got to fix this. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I mean, Al Gore was so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I remember when he came out with his with his oh, how happy I mean, he it, was it, 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 in he, the first couple because uh, he's first, a policy wonk. He oh, yeah, wanted the, to do it right. Like yeah, I mean, wanted, the first couple the first couple chapters of the National Performance Review, okay, were just chock full of examples of how bureaucratic <laughs> red tape. Okay, made it really difficult for the executive branch to get stuff done. Right. Okay, and um, uh, and he and seemed it, like he was gonna like it was. Look, yes. I've got this thing, and it's gonna be yes. fabulous. And then, and then, it, and then nothing. Yeah. You well, know, I mean, incremental change, right? I mean, well, I mean, oh, hey, his boss gets impeached. <laughs> he loses the two thousand election. Yeah. Okay. At that point, he's like, "Fine, don't even read my report. Fine." Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> then you have the 9-11 attacks, okay? Uh, well, and then suddenly he notices that climate change, you know, like, I mean, he, yeah, right. Like, all of a sudden things got bigger in his world and different. Um, well, I mean, think about it. I mean, this is a guy with a thousand watt intelligence light bulb, right? Okay. Um, that needs to be focused, right? Right. That, that you know, uh, it, it, and that's the thing that you could always say about Al Gore, right? Okay, um, you know, he may not have always been a great politician, but good Lord, was he a bright person, right? And all in. Oh, yeah. When right? I'm in, I'm all in. Yes. Um, yep. So for good or for ill, I'm all yep. in. Okay, so thank you so much. Um, and thanks, listeners, for staying with us for the second part of this episode. We appreciate that you let us uh, truncate. Um, and uh, we will be back with another commission report next time yes well done you've been listening to civil discourse brought to you by vcu libraries opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of vcu or vcu libraries special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance music by isaac hobson Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.